Now, as I said, we're in the second last week of this Philippians series, and isn't this passage today such a great one? Do you all want to burst into song? Remember that round that we used to sing in the 70s? Yeah, are you going to or not? All right, good. Now, I've got uh, two points today, joy in unity and joy in anxiety. Joy in unity and joy in anxiety. Look, today there's a lot of emphasis on the individual, isn't there? Have you noticed that? A lot of emphasis on the individual. We can find literally hundreds of books in the self-help section of any bookstore, uh, and most of these books are targeted to individual needs, to help us be a better person as an individual, to reach our great potential Uh, And that's because most of us think in terms of our individual needs. And as a society, I think it's abundantly clear that we value individualism. Would you agree? Now, there's nothing wrong with this per se, unless we emphasise individuality at the expense of community. That's where there's a problem. And I think generally in the world today, that's what we're doing. We're prioritising the individual at the expense of community. Now, the Apostle Paul had a single purpose in life, and that was to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see people uh, come into relationship with him. And as he did that, he established churches. He established churches. Now, he didn't do that because he dreamed it up. He did it because it's God's idea. It's Jesus' idea. In other words, God knew that we can't do this alone. We need to be in Christian community to be able to live the Christian life. He knew that we needed one another. Christianity is a group thing. It's a group thing. And that's why we've got to learn how to live together in such a way that we can be effective. Now, there was a situation in the church at Philippi where there was some conflict. Euodia and Syntyche were two women in the church who had worked with Paul. Now, uh, we don't know very much about them. We don't know what the conflict was over. All we know is that they weren't in agreement and they were having problems. Now, if we are going to be effective in the church, as a church... We need unity, don't we? We need unity. We must share a common vision. And to do that, we all need to be prepared to give of ourselves. Basically, to give ourselves away for the sake of the vision that God is giving us. To give ourselves away. God's will must become our will, not the other way around. Often uh, we pray and we tell God what he should do, don't we? Do you find that? You've got it all worked out. You're saying, now, God, uh, if you do this, 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 and this, all will be well. So please bless that. (laughs) In other words, we are asking God to make our will his will. Instead, we need to discover his will and adopt that as our will. 
Now, what do you think will happen if we all do that? Well, if we all do that, then we'll be able to walk together in unity. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Unity comes around shared vision, and for Christians, unity comes around shared gospel vision. We are one in Christ Jesus. That's a declaration. What we have to do is to maintain that oneness, to maintain that unity that is ours simply by belonging to Jesus. And when we do that, we will be a testimony to the world that Jesus makes a difference in the lives of those who follow him. And do we want to do that? Do we want to testify to the world that Jesus makes a difference? And let me tell you, unity in the world is a very rare thing. You've only got to look at any political party and you realise that. Unity is rare. Paul says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, it's possible that Euodia and Syntyche could have been leaders in the Philippian church, and if so, their lack of unity would have caused more damage than it otherwise might. Paul describes them as being among his co-workers. So they obviously had a leadership role. And here he calls on another companion there to help them make it right. Now, today we didn't read verse 1 of chapter 4. That was in last week's passage. But I take you back to verse 1, where Paul describes his brothers and sisters in Philippi like this. He describes them as his joy and crown. And he calls on them to stand firm. Then he immediately goes on to reprimand Euodia and Syntyche. Now, uh, I would think probably because the disunity between those women detracts from the joy that Paul was receiving from the Philippians. He just said, you're my joy and my crown. So Euodia and Syntyche, get your act together. Their names are in the book of life. They are loved and redeemed by the Saviour. They've worked side by side for the gospel and so for the sake of Paul's joy and their own joy, they need to be reconciled. It's very hard to find joy in your discipleship if you are at odds with your companions. Isn't that right? Can I encourage you today that if you are experiencing a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, or if you're just struggling with someone you find really difficult, then why don't you be the one who makes the first move? Why don't you be the one? Put aside your own little peccadillos and sensitivities and remember that above all else, your name is written in the book of life. And indeed, that is if you have given your life over to Jesus. And return that relationship into one of love and unity. So I encourage you to do that today. And if you do, joy can more easily be a characteristic of your life. Now these next four verses are so familiar and so challenging. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there, this is where we move into joy in anxiety. This whole theme of joy has already been introduced by Paul several times in Philippians. In chapter 1, he says, I pray with joy. In chapter 2, if he is to be a sacrifice for them, he will rejoice in that. In chapter 3, he says, so brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And now chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And in this instance, he's emphatic because he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Do we get it? (laughs) Now remember, don't ever forget, he's writing from prison. Context. He's writing this from prison. He's not saying, let's just stick out this tough life as best we can. It's tough for me. It's tough for you. So we've just got to make do. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, rejoice. How on earth can we rejoice always? How do you do that? Well, thank goodness Paul gives us the answer. I was very glad when I found that out. Paul gives us the answer. He says, rejoice always in the Lord. Rejoice always in the Lord. It's not something we do. It's who God is and what he has done, what Jesus has done for us and through us. Now, I want to do a little excursus into the Greek word for rejoice, which is hyro. So open bracket. Okay? It's used in a variety of ways. Uh, it's often the formal beginning of a letter, uh, a formal greeting when you met someone in public. Um, But it was also used as an expression of well-being and of gladness. Isn't that beautiful? An expression of well-being. And that's a wonderful way to describe and understand joy. In Acts 8, the word is used there when the good news is preached and received, those who believed were filled with hyro. The same word was used to describe the prodigal son's father when the son returned. It's also used, though, as an expression of the ultimate response of worship, the attitude that comes with praise. And it's used to describe what will happen because your name is written in the book of life and in heaven you will be at the marriage feast of the Lamb described in Revelation. That's what the word's about. All that is wrapped up in the little word rejoice or be joyful. Okay, excursus over, close bracket. Now, how many of us are immune to stress? How many of you are immune to worry? Yeah, I see heads being shaken. (laughs) Stress has become a way of life, hasn't it? We live in a world of stressed out people. There is truth that we need some stress to be able to function at our best, 
and some people claim that they need high levels of stress to push them to excellence, but they're still stressed out. We live in an age of anxiety. Today we talk about burnout like no other time in history. There are more emotional disorders as a result of stress and anxiety than ever before. What can we do about it? Can we rise above the pressures of life? Does Jesus make a difference? Most Christians would say that he does. Well, if he does, what difference is he making in your life? Are you being different, living differently through Christ being in your life? How does Jesus make a difference in the way you handle the pressures and stresses of life? Because Paul is saying here, do not be anxious. God wants us to be full of joy. Now, the fact that God wants us to be full of joy is not something believed by a lot of people. Uh, In fact, some people view God as a killjoy, don't they? They see him as a crotchety old man waiting for us to make a mistake so he can slap us on the wrist. They see God as someone trying to keep us from having any fun. But that's not who God is. But we all have anxieties. We worry about so many things. We worry about jobs. We worry about money, our marriages, our children. We worry about the past. We worry about the present. We worry about the future. We worry about paying the bills. We worry about our investments. We worry about retirement. We worry about our health. And we worry about our relationship with God, don't we? But what good does worry actually do? What's the answer? None. It does nothing whatsoever. The truth is that you generally can't change what you worry about, so all your worry is wasted anyway. All that energy, stop it. (laughs) Use the energy for something else. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? We heard a little earlier when... David read to us, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or clothes. Doesn't life consist of more than food and clothing? The real antidote to worry is a simple trust in God. Now please don't hear me saying that for people who suffer from clinical conditions, either depression or other mental illnesses, should simply just put their trust in God and stop worrying. That would be a very foolish thing for me to say, very unhelpful and a very wrong thing for me to say. But please, can I encourage you that if you have or think you might have a condition, then please seek medical intervention and don't ever feel that that is a lack of faith to do so. Don't ever feel that. In fact, I believe it's the opposite It's a sign of courage and of trust in God that he will lead you to the help you need. But what I do want to say to everyone is that God loves us and he's in control and he wants the best for us. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your fears. And for those of you who are just plain old worriers, Trust God instead. 
Trust God instead. Now, by this, I don't mean that when we have faith in God, bad things won't happen. They do. But what I do mean is that when we allow our faith in God to rule our thinking, our responses to the bad things of life can be different. Paul wrote this letter from jail. Life for Paul was pretty much as bad as it was going to get. Yet he was able to write this letter saying the things he did to the people he loved. The message is simple. Replace worry with prayer. Pray so much that worry has to stand in line. Okay, let's move on to the next few verses. It's actually beautiful because Paul has told us not to worry but to pray. And then here he is again, so practical, so practical, because he tells us what to fill our minds with. He tells us how we should think. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that. Put your mind there. At first glance, he seems to be the Norman Vincent Peale of the two millennia ago, you know, the power of positive thinking. Now, he is thinking positively, that's for sure, but it's so much more than that. I believe he is encouraging us as Christians to think in a distinctively Christian way. And the reason why he's doing this is because Thinking matters. Thinking shapes our life. We need to understand the importance of how we think as we try to live a distinctively Christian way. What we think matters. Health professionals will tell us just how powerful our mind is. In fact, our mental condition can affect our physical condition. And this has actually been known for millennia. Proverbs 17 says... A cheerful heart is a good medicine, but a downcast spirit dries up the bones. It's not recent medical wondering that has told us that our mental affects our physical. Our thoughts shape our lives. What we believe determines how we behave. How we look at the world and think about the world determines how we respond to circumstances and to people. In other words, what we focus on What we think on determines how we live. Listen again to the things he mentions. Things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. He's asking us to reject thinking that is impure and unrighteous, thinking that is ungodly. And he's saying, embrace a new kind of thinking, thinking that is righteous and holy and positive. Christian thinking, you see, is full of hope and full of faith, not full of worry. And isn't he practical telling us how to fix the problem? (laughs) Thinking and living go hand in hand. We will never live right until we think right and living right will encourage us to think right. So we, uh, it's a cycle. 
And so I believe we need to be careful about what goes into our minds, what we see with our eyes, what we do with our bodies, because all these things affect our thinking. What do we watch on TV? What movies do we choose to look at? What books do we read? What magazines do we buy? What websites do we go to? Do they pass the true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy and excellent test? Now I want to put a little proviso here. Please don't hear me saying that we need to pull out of the world. That is not what I'm saying. We need to engage with the world and we need to know what is happening in the world. We need to know what people are watching and reading and we need to do that in order to be better uh, informed about the world for the sole reason of presenting Jesus in a way that is going to communicate effectively. So, my friends, let's draw this to an end. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. (coughs) The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.